for joining us today. I'm Safia Kazi, and I'm the Principal of Privacy Professional Practices at ISACA. Joining me today are two very special guests, Jack Freund and Natalie Jorian. They're here to discuss their recently released journal article, The True Cost of a Data Breach. Jack, Natalie, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having us. Um, now, just to get us started, Jack, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce us, and let us know what your background is and what it is that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right now, I'm the uh, Vice President and Head of Cyber Risk Methodology at BitSites. Uh, I've been in this role for a couple years by way of acquisition. Um, prior, uh, previously, I uh, was at a, a Moody startup that was uh, recently acquired. Uh, prior to that, I've done some consulting work and then also worked full-time in financial organizations uh, doing cyber risk quantification. Uh, my background in this goes back uh, at least 17 years, um, uh, doing a lot of work in uh, risk assessment, risk management, and risk quantification, uh, most notably the co-author of uh, the book on uh, the FAIR risk assessment methodology. Great, thanks. And Natalie, can you introduce yourself to our audience and give us a little bit of information about your background? Hi, yeah, I'm Natalie Jorian. I'm a principal data scientist at BitSight. I've been working there for two years. And prior to that, I was a psychometrician um, working on different assessments. Um, and so I specialize in assessment validation and uh, different assessment methodologies. Great, thanks. Now, I wanna get into your article a little bit. Jack, we've worked together on articles for years now, but I'm curious about this specific topic. Why did you two want to write an article about the cost of a data breach specifically? Well, we had a problem practically that we were trying to solve for. And um, uh, just by way of contextualizing this, you know, in, in those past, let's call it 15 years uh, doing risk quantification, there's been a definite dearth of data and um, developed a lot of methods and leveraged a lot of methods for sort of uh, circumventing that, doing uh, SME calibrated estimates and then putting those into calculations. But uh, we've really kind of reached a tipping point here in the last couple of years where uh, there's enough data to be able to make some reasonable assessments about stuff. Uh, now, once you start doing this, you obviously want more data. Uh, so what we tried to do is find a way to uh, interpolate from the data that we did have and uh, sort of, uh, you know, flush out the rest of the data that we needed uh, for these records. So um, that was one of the reasons why uh, I asked Natalie to help with some of her background to sort of find a way to uh, adjust some of the data sets where we had missing costs to really be able to sort of build a more robust data set to uh, make a reliable estimate for these loss projections. But we didn't want to just put in any data. We have to have the right data. And that's where uh, some of the methods we talk about in this article uh, really came to the forefront. Yeah, and why is it important for leaders to be able to convey the negative impact, financial impact specifically, of cyber incidents? Yeah, I, I have a funny quip I say about this, and that's for years, uh, CISOs and security organizations were uh, pleading with the boards of directors to pay attention to cybersecurity. And uh, the good news is uh, we've reached that point where boards are going to pay attention to cybersecurity and are paying attention to cybersecurity. And the bad news is, the boards are paying attention to cybersecurity. Uh, and by that, I mean that the, the, the broader investment communities that the boards are, are familiar with interacting with, uh, you know, largely credit analysts and underwriting through insurance, um, and even just straight up investor communities themselves, are, are, are really trying to understand, um, especially with the 
uh, uptick in ransomware incidents, what the impact of cyber failures look like to operations. And it's at that point that the only real language that exists to be able to properly communicate that is through the use of risk quantification, uh, which, by the way, just sort of uh, brings cybersecurity on par with uh, other operational risk and enterprise risk management practices where they try and express those losses in similar terms that way. So, so that's why the, the, the CISOs that are really uh, uh, um, uh, maturing their own skill sets and their and the, and the practices in their organization are leveraging cyber risk quantification to a certain degree uh, to be able to build a more robust package of presentation to those boards to be able to say, uh, here's what loss projections look like, here's what our insurance looks like, here's what control maturity looks like, here's what assessments looks like, and it becomes a part of that palette of presentations that you give to those board directors. Yeah, and I know one of the things that you said in your article is that data breaches are underreported. Why is that? <laughs> There's some interesting perspectives about why that is, um, and some of these things I've heard secondhand. Uh, we happen to have uh, really good sunshine laws here in the United States where you know people are able and, and compelled to disclose these types of things. In some other countries around the world, I hear from those that are experts on that that that's not quite the case. Um, so, so in, and even if they do uh, report that an incident occurred or somehow the press becomes aware of it, all the details available to that are not readily available to. And this is sort of where you have this, uh, uh, you know, call for this sort of, um, uh, in the U.S., we have the, you know, National Highway Traffic Safety Boards where all these data becomes available and you can run reports on them that way. Um, so there is sort of a, a information asymmetry that exists between what an organization knows about these particular incidents and then what the broader community knows about it. Uh, and that sort of limits what you're able to do because you don't have complete data in this one. Yeah, and you know, one of the things you talk about in your article are direct and indirect costs that might be associated with a cyber attack. What's the difference between the two and what are some of the costs, direct or indirect, that might result from a cyber attack? This one's for Natalie. Natalie. You go ahead and take this one. Okay. <laughs> you spent some time with this. Sure. So um, direct costs include expenses from forensic investigations, fines, compensations um, to affected parties. Um, so indirect costs are ones associated with losses from internal productivity, um, communications regarding the status and the effect of the breach, and business opportunities lost from reputational harm and customer turnover. That's really interesting because some of the things you mentioned especially for indirect costs, seem like they're things that you may not even factor in or experience for a couple of years. Um, are organizations doing a good job of understanding, okay, we had a breach in, let's say, 2018. What are the ramifications and how is it costing us now, potentially, in 2023? Organizations broadly, probably not to the degree they should, and, and let me just sort of uh, calibrate that response a little bit. I think Part of that, part of the way that these costs play out over time uh, is in large part due to the speed of the legal systems in which they're operating. Uh, it just takes time to go through discovery and class action lawsuits, which is relatively a US-based sort of thing, but happens in other countries too. And, and because it takes so long, that immediate cost is not necessarily felt. And by the time that the large numbers hit, there's a different uh, investment uh, trend happening at the same time. So there's a lot of 
different um, impacts that, that take time to play out. There's appeals, there's et cetera, that also goes through there. Even in some of the uh, insurance cases that you see playing out where uh, there was silent cyber coverage where they're trying to um, um, get cyber losses claimed through you know, property and casualty type, pos type policies, um, there's some court cases involved in, in, in there too. So, uh, so you're right, those, those indirect costs are a little squishier and they sometimes don't materialize in the current reporting period. And, uh, and that does time, that does mean that there is a, uh, a necessary uh, practice where you have to go back and update the data sets uh, with the revised information when they happen to sort of get a, a, a full stream account of what those impacts look like. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with Panaman's cost of data breach annual reports. Can you tell us a little bit about how they go about calculating the costs and then some of the potential drawbacks used by the simple model that's used in those reports? I can take this one. So um, the way that the Panaman Institute calculates uh, the potential data breach cost is through an average. So it's basically uh, the number the total monetary cost divided by the records lost. Um, so I think in 2021, they cited uh, that it would be 161 uh, per record lost. And you just do the calculation to figure out how much you could potentially lose in a year. And I think part of the reason why um, this, this model is so frequently cited in cybersecurity reports is because it's so simple. Um, all the companies have to do is if they know the number of records they have, they just multiply it by this uh, cost, which is 161 in this case, and then they can figure out what they can expect to lose. Um, the problem with this is also that it's very simple. Um, some other research found that um, some of the this estimated cost per record explained a very small percentage of the variance in the data. So um, I believe uh, uh, Jacobs for 2014 uh, found that Poneman Institute's model explained only 2% of the variance in the data. Um, so there's so many more factors that go into what uh, what will, a data breach will, will end up costing. And what's more is that this cost per uh, uh, record heuristic is becoming less accurate in more recent years, probably in part due to the, the rise of ransomware. Yeah, especially for those incidents that don't involve records at all, uh, there becomes this sort of gap in understanding and knowledge about what that's going to cost. Um, yeah, I, I think it's um, deceptively simple, um, and that's appealing to uh, organizations that don't have a strong risk quantification uh, understanding and practice. Um, so, so, so banks sort of get it a little bit better than other organizations because they're forced to think about financial risk in a more complicated way. Um, other organizations that, that don't have a strong um, maturity level in, in that space um, can sometimes be sucked into these values. And the danger of it is that uh, you under allocate resources based on a deceptively simple number that is going to expose your organization so that you don't have the proper risk transfer controls in place. You don't have the right budget enabled to mitigate risk. Um, so it's, it's, it's more than just a wrong number. It's actually uh, a dangerous number because it uh, can keep you from properly managing risk. 
Yeah, on that note, your article talks a lot about some different methods to calculate the cost of a breach. And one of the ones that I found really interesting was estimating cost as a function of annual revenue. Um, so why might a model that does that do a better job predicting direct costs, but not these indirect costs? Yeah, I think there's value in sort of looking at those immediate costs, that those sort of direct costs that you see uh, in a, a breach or in this security incidents in general. Um, what you tend to find is that uh, larger organizations have more money to spend on a thing and they're more practice in that. So you sort of have this ability to better understand what those immediate responses are going to be. So whether it's, uh, you know, um, loaded cost rates for, for employee responses or uh, data breach notification letters and subsequent identity theft coverages, uh, those things are fairly well defined and well known. Uh, and uh, or large organizations tend to have large amounts of customers, so they sort of have this this, um, this this mapping of you know those costs tend to step fairly well that way. Uh, it's the indirect costs, like we talked about, that are a little trickier. Um, some of it probably uh, is a function of um, revenue. Uh, you know, larger companies have deeper pockets, so people sue them more often, and the payouts tend to be higher. That's a thing uh, that you can rationalize. Um, but the other indirect costs also tend to be fairly squishy. So when you're trying to come up with an exact number for that, um, the, the you know cost of uh, missed opportunity tends to be a little uh, more difficult to predict that way. Um, so uh, there are some aspects of that that make it a little more complicated. And that's when you have to sort of look at the data to see if there's other things that are telling uh, that they're helpful for you to be able to figure out what those losses are going to look like um, all in. And your article leveraged a lot of information from the Advisin data breach data. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that specific data set gave further insights into the relationships between dependent variables, missing and non-missing data? Yeah, I can talk a little about, about, about that. Um, so Advisin is a rich data set that has um, cases from several decades and it goes uh, it contains about 150 different uh, variables associated with each cyber incident. And so this allowed us to look at what different factors were related to the cost of a data breach. Um, so due to underreporting, though, as Jack mentioned before, there's quite a bit of missing data. So before running our analysis, it was important to investigate if there was some um, missing data or not missing data and whether that was uh, associated with whether it was missing or not. It's a very reliable data set. A lot of insurance companies use the advising data sets uh, and some of their underwriting practices for cyber insurance. Um, they, they, they also spend a lot of time um, uh, you know, manually doing Freedom of Information Act requests to try and gather this sort of data. So it's, it's a fairly well curated data set um, in a space where uh, the, the data exists, but is often very disparate. So there is value in sort of that consolidation of you know, web scrape data, you know, manual government requests for additional information and other things. Um, you know, just my own personal opinion, I, I think it would be great if you found uh, additional data sets um, where a, a lot of the cyber insurers begin to, you know, make available some of uh, their claims data sets too. I think that's the next step in sort of this data evolution here. Um, you find that with a lot of PNC, um, uh, PNC firms with do property casualty, car insurance, homeowners insurance, life insurance, uh, you know, where they file their rating tables publicly with uh, departments of insurance. Uh, you know, I think 
as the cyber insurance space begins to mature over time, I think you'll find a lot more of these firms, um, uh, you know, being compelled either through regulation or best practice to be able to, uh, you know, share this data a little bit more freely. But in, you know, the absence of that kind of stuff, you sort of operate in a enough data to do something with, but not enough data that you would like. And that really sort of sets us off to really think about how do we build interpretation into this so that we can begin to flesh out a lot of the um, missing fields to really make a better and more robust data set. In your experience, is there kind of a culture of not sharing information about a breach you experienced, either just because of the reputational harm or the secrecy or just wanting to keep things secret? Or are organizations relatively open about what they've experienced, the costs, et cetera? Uh, it's fairly clandestine in almost all these. I mean, there are some, uh, you know, some ISAC-based organizations that share. Uh, usually, um, if the sharing occurs, it tends to be very anonymous. There's some private nonprofit organizations in the financial service space that allow you to share operational risk data um, that, that, that way to use in this indexing kind of manner. Uh, you know, if, if our losses look like our peers' losses, what would they look like? Um, there's a lot of, you know, in the cybersecurity profession, we talk to each other a lot. So there's a lot of sort of informal knowledge that way, but it really comes to, uh, you know, database views of these type of things. Uh, it's not um, uh, very uh, pervasive um, outside of places where there's regulatory requirements. Uh, in the U.S., the um, Department of, uh, you know, Health and Human Services publishes the HIPAA fines data sets. So that's very, very public. Um, but what's missing sometimes is what's the proximate cause of that kind of thing. I'm sure we had a loss in this amount, but why did it happen? What did we do? What control failed? Um, there's a lot of other stuff I think that can really be matured in terms of really, uh, you know, making the organization, uh, you know, making cybersecurity as a profession uh, you know, more like the aviation in industry where everyone's very clear on, you know, was it human error? Uh, was there a mechanical malfunction? Uh, was there a design error? What are the things that went wrong and how do we uh, protect that? Um, in the meantime, I think we still find ourselves uh, operating in a little bit of a vacuum sometimes. So uh, organizations that you know have data available um, are able to uh, find ways to um, you know um, do analyses on that data to help the different organizations uh, make some better um, some better judgments about their own risk posture and things that they can do to protect themselves. And what are some variables that might affect the cost of a data breach? So there's a lot of different variables involved, and we found uh, quite a few of these um, in the advice and data set. So, for example, we looked at revenue, uh, company revenue, employee count, um, number of PII records, um, uh, whether there were legal fees involved. So there's a lot of different factors that go into what might affect the cost of a data breach. And the interesting thing, one of the interesting things that we also found is that these change over time. Um, and so we initially created one model, and then eventually we created two different models, uh, one after sort of ransomware became more prevalent, and um, found that there were different variables involved in each of these different models. Um, and this might just have to do with the changing landscape of cyber attacks. Yeah, it is interesting when you look at the data sets and then you sort of try and overlay a narrative onto why. And, you know, the, the, the one that just really kept... Um, coming up was, yeah, I think there's a, d a big difference in the before and after of uh, ransomware scourge that really began uh, during the pandemic. And uh, that, that sort of, I think, is the best narrative I could come up with for, for why those things are like that.
Yeah, and also over time, uh, the the record counts became less indicative of how much a data breach would cost. Um, and so that was one of the really surprising things um, that we found. And that sort of shows that the heuristic that the Poneman Institute uses is becoming less relevant. Yeah, um, I'm curious, how are or have privacy laws and regulations affected patterns that we've seen over the past few years? I know one of the things you said in the article is that GDPR fines rose by 40% in 2020. What's the impact of that? Or is there an impact of that on the overall cost of a data breach? Well, I mean, it certainly doesn't help. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think one of the things that you see um, is uh, somewhat cynically, I think the, the general public is becoming uh, a little bit... Um, uh, less excitable about data breaches or a little more insulated from it because they've been happening a long time. Um, you know, in the, the early days of doing this, I, I can recall thinking, wow, you know, this, you know, eventually people are really going to get angry about this. Um, and we generally didn't as, as, as a society, we, we got less and less angry about it over time. Um, so when that kind of thing happens and you tend to see uh, what people regard as some of this, this disparaging treatment, of companies that mishandle data, uh, then you sort of see uh, what economists call um, these these externalities, where, where there there is uh, a fine, there, so there there is a, a, a negative impact, and uh, you know politicians and governments have attempted to sort of monetize that uh, to add additional cost to it. So I think that's what you're seeing generally is that um, you know these are the fines that are being added um, on top of this that represent the, those economic externalities. Uh, what I also understand is that you haven't really seen those fines kick in at the maximum amount, uh, especially um, from a GDPR perspective. Uh, you know, those maximum amounts of uh, I forget the precise percentage of turnover, but it's you know twenty million or four percent, I think something like that. Uh, you know, those numbers have not really kicked in for most companies. You know, Facebook getting close, but um, and some people I've spoken to in the European Union somewhat cynically say, well, you know, we don't want to damage our own companies uh, compared to the U.S. by charging these enormous fines that way. So I, I think I think that's part of what you're seeing in these data sets is, uh, you know, the, the fines, um, even in the U.S. with you know, CCPA and other ones like, you know, we we want companies to behave appropriately. But at the same time, um, the, the, the people whose data is involved, um, this is my own personal opinion, are, are sort of becoming less and less concerned about it generally because it happens a lot. Uh, it, I, years ago in conferences, I used to ask people to raise their hand if they've, you know, been subject, if their data has been subject to a data breach and then keep their hands up if they've changed to a different business as a result of that. And I don't have to, I don't think anybody would be surprised to know that, you know, very few people kept their hands up. And it was really all the people that sort of had this really real moral in, uh, indignation about the way that their stuff was uh, treated. Um, so most people stick with the same organization after a data breach. So you don't really see a lot of customer desertions that way, for better or for worse. Um, and even if you did, it would assume that you knew something about the control state of the other company you were going to, which obviously you don't. Um, typically staying with the same company is, in my personal opinion, a better bet because they're probably going to do something about those control states and make things better, at least for a little while. Um, so I don't, long way of, of answering the question, but I, I think I think there's a I think it's it's not helping in terms of the amount of money. Uh, I think it's doing that because um, uh, regulatory authorities believe there is some economic externality that they're trying to account for, and and that in particular that regulatory component is making boards very cautious um, of, of doing business. 
Um, and then there is this sort of calculation internally around, you know, how do we balance innovation uh, with privacy? And, and that becomes a very interesting risk management question, actually. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that someone's data might be breached and they might just stay with the company anyway. Um, but I think I hear a lot of conversations about reputational harm and, you know, damaging the trust between a data subject and an organization. But this idea of reputational harm seems, to take your term, Jack, very squishy. How do you go about calculating this or just thinking about it from a data breach perspective? What are some of the things that might make up reputational harm? And is it worth being a factor when you're calculating the cost of a breach? Oh, of course it is. Uh, in the Ferris methodology, we spent a lot of time talking about reputation calculations and uh, we really looked at it from a couple different perspectives and the variables that uh, if you decompose it down that are useful are things like um, you know stock price cost of capital and um, market share those are those are really big things there um, and normally you have these sort of like Fermi type questions where you say you know when you say you know reputation what do you mean and it typically boils down to we want to keep the customers that we have and we want to be able to retain as or, sorry we want to be able to acquire as many new new customers as possible uh, that's sort of what we're trading on when we have our reputation here. Uh, the you know the initial reaction of a company from a PR perspective and an instant response perspective tends to be very telling in terms of uh, you know how people deal with this. This is why you sort of get those we're taking these very seriously kind of reactions, um, which are you know generally considered best practice, if not you know somewhat um, antiseptic. Uh, but those results are, are very helpful. It, it, it's, it's if you have further complications after that, or you fail to disclose how bad things were in the beginning, and so on and so forth, that's when people tend to get a sour taste in their mouth. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about um, this notion of um, reputational risk in terms of um, you know what's the primary value proposition of an organization. So. You know, do I go to a particular store because they have great security or do I go because I like the products and services that they sell? And the, the more um, aligned that the you know, products and services is to the security practices, uh, the greater that reputational harm tends to be. Uh, you know, so if you're going to, uh, you know, uh, um, companies where you're entrusting security into them and then they themselves have poor, poor security, that tends to hurt their reputation a little bit more or worse. Um, I think it's a it's a difficult problem space, certainly one that is uh, worth um, mentioning, especially uh, because boards care a lot about it. They do reputational risk assessments. What happens if our product and services are no longer valuable in the marketplace? What do we do then? Um, so those are meaningful questions for sure. Quantifying them uh, becomes a little bit more difficult because you have to sort of make projections around you know, if our thing failed because we had poor security practices, uh, how many less opportunities are we going to be able to pursue as a result of that? Um, and that that really ties uh, pretty greatly to um, you know, uh, strategy risk assessments and you know broader um, uh, mission of an organization. Yeah, and in your article, you say it is only through continued model validation that the industry can advance the maturity of cybersecurity risk management practices. Why is that the case? Yeah, I think this is an interesting point, and you know, something I've learned a lot more about um, uh, from my, my time 
working with the team at Moody's is, you know, they're constantly looking for new signal in the noise. Like what's the next thing that we need to monitor to be able to better predict this. And um, just like Natalie said, you know, over time, some of those signals become a little arthritic. You know, we, we no longer can really rely on the count of records to be able to give us a reasonable assessment of what that loss amount is going to be. So we have to find those in other places. And, and this is really where model validation becomes a very important part of this. Um, you know, if you're working with vendors that are providing you data of any kind like this, you have to sort of take a look at those underlying models and say, uh, you know, you know, how wrong is this model? There's a, there's a saying, all models are wrong, some are useful. Um, if a uh, company is um, uh, marketing its products and its models upon which they're based as being perfect, uh, then you know they're probably hiding something because only mature organizations talk about weaknesses in their model and what they're doing to improve them. Um, so I think that's a really important uh, fact to consider there. Uh, and I think from a regulatory perspective, you're seeing a lot more interest, um, especially in financial services with organizations looking at uh, all of their cybersecurity models and um, having a better sense of, you know, what the inputs are, are they valid, are we back testing this, are we looking at these models to make sure that the results that are projected are actually what, what occurs. Um, and I think that's only going to really propagate down through organizations that don't have formal model risk management teams. And you're going to see that in a lot of places where this sort of underlying, uh, you know, checking the engine of a particular risk model becoming more and more important. I mean, with the popularity of AI models today, I think you're even going to see this happening more and more where we have to better understand and build, you know, explainable AI to really sort of meet um, uh, some of the customer and regulatory expectations of being able to say, you know, this input plus this processing equals this output and being able to trace that back and forth. And how how reasonable is that output and how correct is it when you look at it historically? All right, and then before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to add for our listeners and viewers? Um, yeah, I'd like to say one thing. So one thing to keep in mind is that the model that we used and the paper is not meant to be a model that companies should use to calculate losses. I think we um, updated this model last year um, and so it'll, it's probably um, outdated by now. So the idea is that um, if practitioners want more accurate estimates, they need to use all the information that they have available to them. Um, they shouldn't be relying on these uh, kind of multiplying numbers by records to get uh, the total cost of a data breach. Um, as I mentioned before, this is really not a great uh, explanatory model given the current events and um, uh, changes in the cybersecurity landscape. So, um, and also that practitioners generally should be always updating their models on a continual basis, especially when there are significant changes. Yeah, I think I think that uh, what Natalie said is spot on. The uh, need for continued vigilance in this space is uh, really paramount here, and I think we as a security practice broadly, uh, especially when you think about um, uh, cyber risk management, quantitative cyber risk management, risk transference through insurance, I, I think we've exceeded the usefulness of simple models, uh, fortunately and unfortunately. So now you really need to have, um, uh, you know, fairly clever solutions and leverage um, data analysis in a, in a way that uh, is, is far beyond um, simple multiplication at this point. All right. Well, thank you two so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for in this episode. But if you're interested in reading Jack and Natalie's full article, be sure to check our episode description box for a link to it. 
That's all we have for this episode. I'm Safia Kazi, and thank you for tuning in.